Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. And I'm Jarrell. And today, we're dangerously likely to talk about impeachment. Again. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. So last week, Dr. Anthony Fauci predicted that with the Biden administration's purchase of 200 million vaccine doses, most of the general public would be able to get a vaccine as soon as April. Here's what he had to say in an interview with Savannah Guthrie. Well, I think it is going to be picked up, Savannah, because if you look at what's going to happen as we get into March and April, the number of available doses will allow for much more of a mass vaccination approach, which is really much more accelerated than what you're seeing now. If you compare now to what we were doing just literally a month ago, the escalation has really been considerable. I would imagine, and in fact, I'm fairly certain, that as we get into and towards the end of April, you'll see some of the implementation of what you just showed, namely pharmacies, community vaccine centers, mobile units, really stepping up the pace of vaccination. So I believe we're on target, we are on target, of what the president said, and hopefully as we get into the early spring, will have a much greater acceleration of dosage. Terrell, what does this mean for the country, and how much longer do you think it will be before we start to shift out of the pandemic? Is there life after pandemic? I thought this was like the new norm. Life after death, life after pandemic. Oh, I'm not trying to get married, not life after death, <laughs> until death do us, till death do us part. My fault. Ah, thanks. <laughs> Commitment issues. <laughs> um, I think that's a great question. I... The news has broke that the Biden administration was able to secure 200 million vaccines and the impact that that's going to have, just as Fauci mentioned. But I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know how we change from where we are. I We've talked about this a few times of how at the start a year ago, almost to this day, we were so focused on community and, and being together and we very quickly snapped out of that. And I don't know if we can put Pandora back in its box. Yeah, I think that like, like for, there's a lot of things we shouldn't do. Like when things are in air quotes normal again, um, you know, herd immunity, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we shouldn't forget about the pandemic because to be honest, some of the things that we have talked about it in developed um within this time zone time frame of the pandemic will be really helpful in how we combat future pandemics. So we shouldn't stop thinking about that. We shouldn't just try to go back to normal. We shouldn't stop thinking about all of the stuff that happened this summer, this past summer with um, the black lives matter movement. And we should, we shouldn't go back to, to life before that either. Like I think this pandemic has exposed a lot of, um, I don't know if fallacies are, are the right, or the right is the right word, but um, uh, it's exposed a lot of inequities across the country that were always there, but we just chose not to to really see it. And then the pandemic hit. Yeah. And so I don't know what normal looks like. And I think a lot of people want to go back to normal and by normal, um, like they mean, yeah, I don't want to wear a mask everywhere I go. And I understand that I don't either. Um, well, it's funny you mentioned that because I actually just had a really interesting conversation with my mother about masks and I know she didn't mean it the way that it came out, but she, she recognized we were free at one point in time and now we have to wear masks everywhere, go blah, 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 blah. blah. And I quickly pushed back on our Asian communities that wear masks 
everywhere they go, not because of a pandemic, but because of smog and the impacts that their environment has on their lungs and their ability to live. Why is it so awful for us to have to do this? Why did we make this such a political argument? And for places like Los Angeles or Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, to name a few, is this not a better option potentially that it's been normalized finally? Normalized with quotation marks. <laughs> to wear a mask and to actually think of, hey, I have asthma. I can't go out in LA smog without dying. So I'm going to wear a mask everywhere I go because it is the better option. Can that be something we take out of this? I think there's a lot of things we can take out of it. And I think that was exactly my point. I think that like whatever normal looks like, um, I think I think there's a lot of things that we just need to keep talking about as a country. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mask thing, like, yeah, I mean, personally, I don't want to wear a mask every day of my life. But like, if you need to, then you need to. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. And hopefully that pandemic has shown that, at least in some places. Um, I, I kind of like the fashion statement my masks have been laying every yeah. now and again. I have, some, I have some pretty nice masks. What can I say? Heck yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm... I think... I think some people are just like looking forward to like, you know, hanging out with um, friends again in, in a group or, you know, going to the bars or going to having a birthday dinner at with 10 people at, at a local restaurant or something. I mean, like, and I miss that too, but, uh, and I think it's okay to look forward to that stuff. But yeah, at the end of the day, there's a lot of things that we shouldn't forget about and we should keep talking about yeah. at the very least. To casually see people outside of my bubble. Yes. Yes. To catch up with an old friend without uh, Zoom. <laughs> yeah. But also to use Zoom. And maybe Skype can make a comeback, but nah, that's a. Don't none, get me wrong. That's another podcast topic. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Zoom is like. Just the virtual environment is really helpful, and I don't mm-hmm. think I don't think jobs will ever be unless it's like really hands on. Will ever be like in person, um, fully again, and that's okay. Personally, for me, I need I need to go to an office. If that's my job, I need to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. I can't stay home every day. I need a change of scenery. But yeah. I could stay home some days. Um, so there's just like things. What does normal look like? I don't know what it looks like. But it's interesting to think that it could be happening by next fall. Yeah. Whatever that normal looks like. The new normal. Remember when we started our podcast with the new normal? New normal. We're going to have to do an anniversary episode because that's when things might be the new new normal. normal. (laughs) (laughs) One last piece I I would bring up that I want to hear from you. Mentioning the the fact that the timeline's looking as if it's fall. Do you think this is an administrative push to in a Hail Mary balls to the wall? We are going to get kids back into schools by the next academic season? I'd like to think yes. And I'll tell you why, because I think that people are kind of realizing that like, like we don't have to get into like the, the murky waters of like public schooling and some of the interesting aspects of our education system. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, people are realizing and starting to understand that like kids in schools is ultimately a good thing and it can be done. It can be done safely even right now. Um, And, even the CDC came out and said that should be the number one priority. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's why teachers are one of, are like the first in line, one of the first people in line to get vaccines. So 
I think, yes, it can definitely happen by fall. And um, I think it can happen safely too, but it, we need to have the appropriate resources to do so. Um, and I think that probably depends on a few things, including the stimulus package. Yeah. That is probably going to go through budget reconciliation. Um, but yes, I do. I do think I do think it can happen. Yeah. And I don't think it's a bad thing that it can happen. I think I have to I see think, the science. I think yeah, I think science definitely needs to be the biggest aspect of how how we can do that safely mm-hmm. simultaneously like like sometimes school is really good for kids. Yeah. So I I've been seeing a lot of talk about Afghanistan, and I know you've been reading articles and pieces there. Like, what's happening? I'm not going to lie. I haven't been keeping up as well as I probably should. For our next story, (laughs) we traveled to Afghanistan. Oh. (laughs) I know. I'm, like, taking the audience on a journey uh, to Afghanistan, (laughs) where the Taliban has been surrounding key cities and choking off supply routes to the capital city in the country. So... Uh, for those of you who uh, maybe never really paid attention much to the wars the U.S. have waged in the Middle East over the past two decades, or really for several decades, um, the Taliban are a Sunni Islamic fundamentalist political and military organization that has been waging war in Afghanistan for years. Basically, some would call it an insurgency. Um, they align closely. They have aligned closely to Al-Qaeda. I don't know what the status of that is right now. Uh, which is a terrorist organization, or at least it's deemed so by the U.S., Mm -hmm. which was involved in things like 9-11, things like that. So, bad. Um, But currently, the real story of this is currently um, President Joe Biden is in a tough spot as the Taliban move closer to taking over the country. Uh, Per the New York Times, um, straight from an article, under the deal struck by President Donald Trump with the Taliban last year, all foreign troops, including the remaining 2,500 American service members who support Afghanistan's beleaguered army and security forces are scheduled to withdraw by May 1st, leaving the country in an especially precarious state. <laughs> if the Biden administration honors the withdrawal date, officials and analysts fear the Taliban could overwhelm what's left of the Afghan security forces and take control of major cities in, in a push for a complete military victory or a broad surrender by the Afghan government in the ongoing peace negotiations. But if the U.S. delays its withdrawal deadline, which a congressionally appointed panel has recommended um, as of February 3rd, the Taliban would most likely consider the 2020 deal with the United States void, which could lead to renewed attacks on American and NATO troops and potentially draw the U.S. deeper into the war to defend Afghan forces, whom the Taliban could still retaliate vigorously against. Terrell, let me just state that we're not foreign policy experts. Not at all. And most of all that was from a New York Times article that I just read. They're credible. Very credible. (laughs) Um, But I got to say, we are really starting to see some more difficult decisions in foreign policy come up from the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you believe is the path they may take here? And that's a difficult... That's a difficult question to answer, but I think that um, uh, with the context of over the last four years, um, how do you think, do you think we're in a better spot with Biden and foreign policy than we have been since Obama? That is a hard question to ask. Um, I know. Bring out your, all the expertise you have on foreign policy right right now. Um, (laughs) 
I find myself stuck on this last sentence in the article that you you just shared um, and potentially draw the United States deeper into the war to defend Afghan forces. And an, an analogy, a metaphor, I'm not entirely sure which one I'm going to lean on here, pops into my head of a person digging a hole. How is it that they find themselves getting deeper into something that they're already digging? They they know full well <laughs> that they're digging the hole, so they're they're getting deeper. I nothing that we do in Afghanistan right now is going to pull us deeper into the war. We created it. We launched our troops. We we challenged and called for our NATO allies to join us under Article Five. We did this, and. The fact that Americans are exhausted with war, so now it's the political, the political expedient and wise thing to always campaign that you're going to get the troops out of Afghanistan without actually doing the research and seeing that there is no clear exit strategy out of Afghanistan, as any foreign policy expert will ever tell you, is frustrating, is infuriating. Because we took a legitimate government that existed there. We can have a a whole argument about whether it was a good government or not. That's not the point I'm making. We took a legitimate government and removed it because we thought a different system was better. And the people have never had a chance to figure out what that system even looks like because it's constantly under siege from other people who don't believe that that system makes sense in that land. So who are we to say, oh, we want to be done with it? When we're the ones who need to show them how to how to do it, how to function it. And who are we to say that we're no longer empirical when we have literally gone into a country with this lovely flag and said, democracy is your answer. And now we're really burdensome by the fact that we have to do that. So to get back to your original point, for the Biden administration, I don't know what this looks like because... I don't think any foreign policy expert knows what this looks like unless we go full in and commit to really building up uh, an institution there. It'll be a war that just always exists. It'll always be a fight amongst the people to identify what their next step is because they have no other option. So Terrell, if you had a prediction, are we staying in Afghanistan or not? What What do you think? Um, my hope is we stay. Your hope? My hope is you we stay. You want endless war, Terrell? I don't want endless war. <laughs> I just... An exit strategy is what you're looking for. I don't even know if that's the right answer. I want... I want us to own our mistakes. America struggles to own its mistakes. How do we own our mistakes by staying in Afghanistan? We help the country that we invaded find its next step. We own the fact that Again, not trying to make an argument of whether the Taliban is good or not. That is not the, the role that I want here. But we have to own the fact that when they were in power, there was some sense of a function for this region. Sure. We removed them for multiple reasons. The war on terror. the Human the, rights abuses. Exactly. Yeah. There, there are legitimate reasons to want to go against them. But we've never done that to China. We've never marched in for human rights abuses or concerns about them oppressing people because we recognize them as a legitimate government. We recognize, uh, 
legitimate is also a loose term in that space as well. <laughs> um, but we we recognize some sense that they they deserve or they they function and do what is right in that mm-hmm. in that space. We didn't do that with the Taliban because of terror, because we felt that there was an imminent attack. And now the people are struggling to keep their government alive, struggling to keep their country because the forces that we pushed out never really left. No. Were they ever going to leave? Probably not. Probably not. To be honest. And we haven't tried to broker a peace deal. We Well, we have, but we haven't successfully tried to broker a peace deal. We haven't found the, the strategy to make the country better than when we invaded it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I don't believe an exit strategy or a withdrawal of troops makes sense. Because essentially we're saying, we liberated you and we're done. We're, we're not going to help you put the pieces back together. We're not yeah. going to help you find the tools that are necessary. It's, yeah, it's just not that simple. Yeah. And, and we have to own that. We have to own that we made the decision because of our war on terror, because of the threat that Afghanistan posed, to march in and also push out the powers to be that were leading the government. Whether that was a mistake or not, again, we can have a different conversation at a different time. But we need to own that we did that. And we need to do the work that's necessary to either rectify that decision or make something better. Impeachment. So last week... In a 57 to 43 vote in the Senate, which is the most bipartisan vote we've ever seen for an impeachment, Donald J. Trump, the former president, was acquitted once again by the Senate. Once again. Once again. But something that's notable is seven Republicans voted with the Democrats to convict the president. Damn. Right? Who were the seven, Terrell? Richard Burr, Bill Cassidy... Pat Toomey, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, and Ben Sass are the lovely Republicans who actually had a backbone. Shout out to Susan Collins for not having a backbone the first time, who actually had a backbone this time and voted to convict the former president. Amazing. Is amazing. it? Is it amazing? Because it was only seven and they needed 10 more. We needed 10 more and it didn't happen. Terrell, were you surprised by this outcome? Can I say yes and no? Sure. But you have to tell us why. I was very surprised with the fact that Richard Burr actually voted to convict the former president. That that one 100% caught me off guard. I was also surprised with, and I know we're going to play this later, with how forcefully Mitch McConnell came out against Donald Trump but still managed to find a way to argue that he made the right decision in voting <laughs> against conviction. So, yes, I'm, I'm surprised with those two things. But the overall outcome, I think we all knew was happening. And now there's a January exception for every president. So, Joe Biden, if you happen to be listening to this podcast, if you don't run for a re-election, which we all, the jury's still out, whatever happens, happens. But January... Do something illegal. January, you can do whatever you want. There's no, there's no guard. There's no safety net. Frankly, I was not surprised by this. Um, disappointing, as always. There was a couple weird things that happened, but before we get into that, uh, I'm actually kind of interested in um, what didn't make the news as much as the impeachment itself, which was 
the ramifications mm-hmm. against the uh, Republicans that voted to convict, um, really in state Republican parties, which are kind of the driving force of insanity sometimes, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so Richard Burr, uh, who is the senator from North Carolina, Bill Cassidy, the senator from um, Louisiana, have both been censured by uh, their state Republican party. Um, state parties in Nebraska, Pennsylvania, Maine, and Maine also plan to discuss possible censorships or other uh, measures against uh, Senator Ben Sass in, in uh, Nebraska, Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, and Susan Collins from Maine. Um, as you might recall, uh, Liz Cheney from Wyoming got censured back when she voted in the House for impeachment, and so did Tom Rice um, from South Carolina uh, for their votes uh, to impeach the former president. Uh, um, and as you know, that kind of led to the Republican House um, kind of really trying to get her out of her leadership position, and she survived. Don't forget, Matt Gates went all the way to Wyoming to campaign against her. Matt Gates is such a dick. That's a nice way of putting it. That is a nice way of putting it, but I don't want to be too crazy for our lovely audience. Yeah, he's just trash. I'll leave it at that. Like it, the <laughs> lengths that these people will go to, like actively go against somebody who didn't vote the way they thought they should, is just absolutely insane to me. Pause. It, it sounds like you're saying the conservative party is engaging in cancel culture, but that's exclusive to Democrats. So <laughs> I, I mean, really, I wait, want you to reconsider what you're saying. <laughs> we're talking about Democrats right now because. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh uh, uh, per the hill um, a former Trump advisor said the censures from the state parties are just a reflection of where the party is at when these senators voted against Trump they knew exactly what the fallout would be so you're definitely going to see this civil war playing out um, <laughs> Terrell the only senator up for re-election in 2022 is Lisa Murkowski in Alaska she voted to convict and everybody's already saying, yep, you've guaranteed yourself a primary um, because you voted to convict. And Lisa Murkowski doesn't seem to care, which is good for her. Lisa Murkowski's popular We've Alaska. also talked about uh, Alaska has moved away from your traditional primary votes and your traditional voting to rank, um, to rank voting. And she's probably safe. Like she gets, I hope so. She gets votes even if... Um, they vote for her competitor. If they say, yes, he's our number one option, but we would still rather have Lisa Murkowski over whoever the Democrats put up. If he loses the election, she still gets all of his votes and carries us. Like, she's safe. At least I hope she's safe. So I guess my real question here, Terrell, is how much do these state Republican Party censorships and other measures that they've taken uh, matter? And is there really a civil war brewing within Republicans? 100% civil war is brewing, but define matter. Um, I don't know. The only one that's up in re-election in 2022 is Lisa Murkowski. Do you think a primary, I guess you already kind of answered this, but do you think a primary against her and future Republicans who also voted to convict or impeach? But do you think they, uh, do you think it's a big test? Do you think they lose or do you think they don't have much to worry about? Mm. that's a good question like ben sass i think there's reason to worry right like you're probably going to get a challenger that you didn't anticipate and that that is a a a worrisome thing especially when you've made a career out of being um on capitol hill but 
I also think something that we're leaving out of this context is that's two years from now. Is in the short term, is the Republican Party still going to manage to hold itself together for the next two years? Which uh, I'm very intrigued to see with the former president coming out forcefully against Mitch McConnell, essentially saying, "It this is war. I, I will do everything in my power to stop you from ever having power, which to my understanding would probably mean that the Republicans never win the Senate back, but that's neither here nor there. Um, that would be interesting. I My quick follow-up to that is, do Democrats have new chances of winning um, elections in the Senate and the House because of this civil war? Are you asking me to have faith in the Democrats? Silly, silly <laughs> fool. <laughs> yes, they do. Will they capitalize? Absolutely not. They Democrats don't understand how to run a 50-state strategy. We've talked about this. Well, do you think they're getting plenty. there now that no. it kind of worked? No, it didn't work. What do you mean it didn't work? It didn't we work. We won Georgia. That's part of it. Georgia is not a good... A good barometer of the strength of the political party. That oh, I'm is not the talking Democrat. about strength. I'm just talking about it the also start was, of it. It also wasn't a 50 state strategy. It was a Georgia strategy where we that went could be applied. To where 50 we went states. balls to the wall because we once again overinvested in a state. Granted, it, it worked to give us a uh, the 50 50 majority. But have we given that same attention to South Carolina even? But do you think instead Georgia... of leaving Jamie on his own, but also now making Jamie the leader of the DNC, there's a lot of issues with the Democratic Party that, no, I don't think Georgia is any inclination that we're getting better. I, I guess I, I didn't mean to say we're getting better because you're right. It was a Georgia strategy. It wasn't a 50 state strategy. But seeing what Stacey Abrams did and all the organizing that did happen in Georgia, do you think it could be a launching pad for a 50 state? Nope. Why? They don't have the infrastructure. How good? But why it, couldn't they? They do in is, Georgia. Why couldn't they launch into others? How good is the Democratic Party in Idaho? I actually don't know. I don't follow them. Exactly. You can't and have that's a, probably part of the problem. You can't have a fifty-state strategy when you have a Democratic Party of Idaho that was hosting canvassing campaigns. I was signed up on the register. Yeah, they were doing canvassing before COVID. They were hosting watch parties for primaries. They were doing all the things, but they lack so much infrastructure because the Democratic Party doesn't find any value in Idaho, which is fair. Well, um, but Idaho, I think, is a bad place to look in time, terms of finding infrastructure, though. Three I, electoral votes. Come on. But a senator. I think... I think, I, think it's, I think it's important down the line, but I don't think it's the first state you focus on. But I think the same reason... The Democrats have seen success in Montana every blue moon. You can see it in Idaho. The votes for Idaho are based in Boise and just picking off one county. You don't even need to win statewide. You literally just need... Tell that to Paulette Jordan who did just that and still lost by the same amount everybody's been losing for the last 20 years. But she didn't do that well in Boise and she didn't pick up another county. Exactly. But, but that's what I'm saying she didn't do what I'm saying. Win Boise and win one other county. Sun Valley is a great example. I think you could. That's always blue. I think. I think Idaho. Can, I think you have a longer way to go in Idaho than you think because the one place that should have been blue in Idaho went red this very election. Red. Because more people view Democrats as socialists. But if you run the same strategy yeah. that most Montana Democrats do, of we don't care about. <laughs> We don't care about Medicare for all. We don't care about all of these welfare programs. We care about the fact that our state has one of the most uh, federally restricted land masses 
in the country, we care about the environment. We want to have more robust conversations on the environment. Oh, you yeah. could do that in Idaho. Oh, I agree. A hundred percent, especially agree. with the hydrothermal uh, infrastructure that they have from an energy standpoint, you could do that. But because the Democrats have no infrastructure around 50 states, they won't. And I 100% think that they can make an, uh, an argument to have one senator from Idaho, which sounds crazy, but that's because we've never tried. Well, but I guess I think we're viewing 50-state strategy two different ways. I think so, too. Because I think you're viewing it as, well, actually, I'm not going to tell you how I think you're viewing it. I'm going to say that for me, I think a 50-state strategy isn't something that happens right away. I think it's something you build slowly across the United States. I will take that and raise you <laughs> the 20... I think Georgia could be a starting point because there is infrastructure there. I'll raise you the 2018 primary. Okay. Nancy Pelosi made a political move to, to assume that if you let every politician running for the House run their own message, do not tether to me as a, the leader of the party, do not tether to any policies that we have, you run what makes sense in your county. Democrats won more than we thought they would in that election. They did. I Yes. What was the difference in 2020? They got tethered to the Democratic policy. They got tethered to the platform. One, because obviously we had a president running at that point in time. So it's hard not to be tethered to the, the platform. But your individual suburbanite mm -hmm. re uh, representatives were forced to have to take ownership of all of these things that they inherently didn't want. And that's where I would argue the 50-state strategy is there, and that's how I view it, of let your senators, let your politicians do what they need to okay. do for their state. Stop feeling like you need to be the party. You call yourself the big tent party, and yet you force them to fit into the smallest tent possible at the same time. That's a good take. I was thinking about it from more of a purely infrastructure infrastructural infrastructural it's a place. word now i i that's a good point i agree with that what's the infrastructure left behind of those successful messages is my question and that should be part of it really well the issue is there wasn't the infrastructure died with the politicians yeah i hate that that's the weirdest thing to me that infrastructure dies with the politicians Blame That's Obama. Not how we're going to win elections. It's not just Obama. It's, it's all the Democrats. It's not just him, but you can blame him because he did take his huge digital marketing strategy away in the midterms, and that's why the Democrats lost handedly after Obamacare because he wasn't running anymore. No, he wasn't running. But it's like it's like these it's campaigns just like let all this information go to waste yeah. and basically hit delete on their computers, and you're like, why? But. You do have Jamie Harris now taking lead in DNC. So who's... He, he probably knows better than that. <laughs> yeah, but let's see if he actually has as much power as people think he's going to have. Because he was a no one before. Do people think he's going to have power? I think... How much... I mean, the DNC has as much power as it does, but at the end of the day, I don't know. You Look know? at what Tom Perez did. People were calling for Tom Perez to be removed from his speaker, his position when he started. I didn't agree with that. I didn't either. Um, but I think... Something that isn't being talked about in the Jamie Harris Harrison space is he was a nobody until that election. That's true. No one knew who he was. Mm -hmm. He was kind of relevant in South Carolina, but wasn't that big. He raised a ton of money, and the DNC is like, ah, if he can fundraise, he's he's the next option. 
I'm intrigued to see if they allow him to do what he thinks is best or if he's forced to follow what has historically been there because he's not the elite. He's not the one that everyone looks to and thinks Democrat, Yeah, thinks party. I'll be very interested to see what his tenure is like. Yes, but I shifted us far away from impeachment. Yes, I wanted to get back to... Um... <laughs> kind of something you already mentioned. First of all, there was a couple. I have a couple questions to a couple of. Sh- I call them strange happenings. I don't think you'll agree with that. Um, <laughs> there were a few strange happenings. You were not wrong. Well, the two that I have um, taken out. One of them you already mentioned. Uh, one of the first strange happenings was uh, when the Democrats and some Republicans voted to include witnesses in the trial and then proceeded to not actually call any witnesses. That was a what fun was, wake up. What was the strategy there, if there was any, Terrell? Or was it just dumb? It wasn't dumb. I It, okay. it definitely was not dumb. I do think your point on what was the strategy is important because, by and large, all sources and all conversations I was able to either be a part of or hear said that a lot of people got blindsided. A lot of people did not know that the house managers were going to call for witnesses it was a game time decision oh. that came. I, we had talked about this. Um, it was a game time decision that came from one, the release of a congresswoman's words involving McCarthy's phone call with the president, but two, the forcefulness of Trump's attorneys to call the process a sham and say that they hadn't done their due diligence to prove any of their points. From what I've heard, those words really ignited Raskin to say, okay, I'm going to call your bluff. I'm going to call for witnesses and just went with it. And from what I've heard, Schumer was a little blindsided too, so he wasn't as much of a fan. <laughs> but I think something, again, that gets left out of the narrative is, yes, witnesses were called, but it wasn't called just by Democrats Three Republican senators broke with the Republican Party and also called for witnesses, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, and Susan Collins, specifically because of the political report of the phone call. And that's what they cared about. Mm -hmm. It sounds like when they started to go to the negotiating table, the Trump attorneys were, their first witness that they were going to put up was Nancy Pelosi. They wanted to depose Nancy Pelosi Mm -hmm. and a Essentially just make a mockery, a mockery out of everything. Yikes. And that was part of the reason why there was a lot of contention. But also, once those three senators broke ranks, it became very clear that they got to make the last decision. So if they wanted more witnesses, we probably would have been in a different situation. But from what I've, I've learned, it seemed like they really only cared about the words of this congresswoman and they wanted them officially in the record. They didn't really care if she showed up or not. They didn't really care if any other witnesses were there. And if it broke down to a 50-50 split, there was no one to break a tie. So witnesses wouldn't have happened anyway Mm. if we got to that final vote. So I do think I get the frustration. I know a lot of people are like, man, why didn't the Democrats use their power? But they really didn't have power here. And this just goes to show how awful it is to have a 50-50 Senate because there is no real leading party. That's fair. The other strange happening... Uh, that happened uh, was Mitch McConnell voting to acquit um, and you mentioned this before and then proceeding Mm. to give a fiery speech about how guilty Donald Trump is but that it's still not the Senate's place I believe I have a clip and I'm going to play it now they did this 
because they'd been fed wild falsehoods by the most powerful man on earth. Because he was angry, he lost an election. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. So Terrell, why did Mitch McConnell feel like... Because he's a like... fool. <laughs> I'm not even going to let you ask a question. Because he's a fool. <laughs> well, is he playing both sides here? What, what, he's what's just... the strategy of voting to acquit and then basically saying Trump is guilty? He's Thomas Jefferson reincarnated. Thomas Jefferson reincarnated? He is, he is the biggest walking contradiction in the history of the United States since Thomas Jefferson. He is the only person I can think of who can care about the Constitution, but also be the person who's ripping the Constitution apart at the same exact time, and then find a legal argument, or any stupid-ass argument, um, that validates him shredding the Constitution because it's for the greater good. Well, and it's not the Senate's place, right? It, but it was, and that's that's the biggest well, frustration you, of what he said. If you believe in limited government, and that's what republicans but this isn't a limit this isn't a limited government then it's up to the people right this isn't a limited government argument the constitution spells out that this is their job yep this is their sole responsibility and this is the only way we can hold presidents accountable which as we said at the start of this joe biden if you're listening january all you um But this wasn't an argument anymore. And and I think the biggest frustration is Senator Burr came out with a one-sentence uh, explanation of why he did this. And his explanation was, we had already decided the constitutionality. We had already voted. I didn't agree with the vote. I voted that it was unconstitutional for us to proceed. But we had already agreed. And for that reason, that reason alone, I took out constitutionality from the equation I voted on the merit of the facts presented to me, and based on the facts presented to me, Donald J. Trump incited an insurrection against the U.S. government and put all of us at risk, which Mitch McConnell said. Agreed with. He seemed to, anyway. The only argument he kind of made was if we went on the constitutionality, or not the constitutionality, if we went on the criminal definition of incitement, there's an argument that he didn't meet that threshold, but impeachment is not based on criminal matters, which he says it is based <laughs> on high crimes and misdemeanors as is spelled out by our constitution. And on that standard alone, I would argue that Donald Trump incited the riot that descended upon this chamber. And yet I still decided that I didn't trust the question that was called before we started this impeachment trial. And for that reason, and that reason alone, I voted to acquit the man, not because he was not guilty, but because I didn't agree with the process. And I I find it hard because it's like, at one point, if you disagree with a vote so much, do you have to, can you still think about it? Simultaneously, if you lost the vote, should you even be thinking about the constitutionality of it no. instead of the merits of the case, right? He's setting a very dangerous precedent that will bite him in the arse <laughs> of... <laughs> I said dick earlier, you can say ass. I said ass earlier, too. I just wanted to say arse <laughs> that time. Um, he set a very dangerous precedent because now, Chuck Schumer, if you're listening, Mitch McConnell has set a precedent that if you ever didn't agree with a decision that the Senate has made about procedure or about constitutionality, you can now 
vote counter to that. And if the vote comes out your way, you can essentially challenge the Supreme Court and say, well, I didn't agree with this decision. And for that reason and that reason alone, I voted this way. (laughs) What I also think is important here and something that has really started to frustrate me because the Trumpians, the Trumpers, the Trump Knights, whatever you want to call them, have been emboldened by this. Of course. Is he was not acquitted and proved to not be guilty. If anything, this is more like a a hung jury. This is everyone... Oh, he was guilty. Everyone kind of agreed, but there there was one juror who decided to go against this. I got into a very fiery argument with someone, actually, because they said... Well, you can't call them jurors. The Constitution calls them jurors. I'm not calling them jurors. The Senate turns into a, a body of jurors who are judging the merit of a case and a trial is proceeding to determine whether or not the president should or should not be convicted. And to say that he's acquitted is accurate because he didn't reach the, the two-thirds threshold to be removed, but... It wasn't a vote of acquittal because he was not guilty. It was genuinely a hung jury where had we had a real judge, the judge could have made a merit that said we could revisit this at a later date. If the prosecution finds new evidence, they can rebring this case up and it wouldn't um, violate double jeopardy. And I think that's something that is missing from this narrative of we can't let this become a, well, he wasn't guilty. No, he, he was sure as hell guilty. There is... More evidence presented in the House impeachment manager's docket than I anticipated. This was a procedural issue and this was a hung jury issue. And we need to own that and say he should still be uh, held accountable, tried, whatever it means. But also I kind of blame uh, Fulton County for where we ended up because they announced that they were more strongly investigating whether or not to charge him. And that gave a lot of Republicans hope that, oh, the Senate doesn't have to disqualify him. We'll let Fulton County find him guilty of a federal case because in our minds it's open and shut, which he very well could get off on that one too. And if he's found guilty of a federal crime, he can no longer run for office. So I just, I'm very frustrated to say the least. One last thing I want to say is uh, to all the Ted Cruz's in the world, accountability is not the same thing as cancel culture. Thank you. But can we cancel Ted Cruz? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that we, we clarify. Because, yeah, I, I agree, but we, we should cancel Ted Cruz. Yeah. We should also hold him accountable for his actions as well. And part of the... For the Zodiac murders or for... <laughs> <laughs> what, which part are we holding him accountable for? There's like a laundry <laughs> list of things. Oh, I don't know. All of them. <sighs> Anyways. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week.